I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Watching the Sky Turn Blue by my guest today on the program, Louise Gothen. Now, this is the point in the podcast where I usually say, let me tell you a little bit about Louise Gothen, but I've done that. I have. I did it last week on part one of this podcast. That's right. This is a two-parter. First time in the history of the show that we have a two-parter, and you know what? I'm into it. I like it. I like the idea of, uh, of a part one and a part two. Now, there's a reason why I did this. Here are the reasons why I broke this podcast up. Number one, it's long. The whole thing was over two hours. And I thought, well, if you listen to this at the gym, uh, that's like two workouts, right? If you work out for an hour, (laughs) I'm going to do the math for you. If you work out for an hour on a regular basis and you take podcasts with you, this podcast would be about two workouts. That's how long it was. So I chopped it up, which I guess is still two workouts because, you know, whether it's chopped up or not. Uh, It does represent two workouts. Okay, that analogy doesn't work at all. Forget I said that. The point is, it was long, which is fine. I think you guys can handle long. Not a big deal. Uh, Pretty comprehensive, in-depth chat. I liked the flow of it. Didn't really want to interrupt it. Then I thought about it. And I thought, you know what? This talk is so interesting because part one is really all about the craft of songwriting. It's all about the discipline of creativity. It's all about being immersed in your art, and really focusing on just that. And the conversation really is a sort of nuts and bolts discussion about the creative process and uh, the art of songwriting. Part two is not about that at all. It's a little more candid. Uh, Louise talks about her parents, and uh, she talks about the difficulty of receiving compliments of any kind. Uh, And she tells a great story about hanging out with Madonna. So, you know, part one and part two were very distinct. I took the whole thing with me to the gym, and I listened to the entire interview, because I work out for two hours. Uh, (laughs) And I listened to it, and I thought, you know what? There's a perforation here. There's a clear demarcation point that needs to be honored. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt about it. And, uh, you know, look... I'm sitting here telling you it was my idea, but at the end of the interview, the thing you don't hear is Louise says to me, hey, you should break this up into two parts. <laughs> I remember thinking at the time, I will never do that. I want this thing to roll. I want my listeners to stay in the gym and have it roll all the way through. Uh, but no, that was not the right call. Louise was right, and uh, it didn't take long for me to come around either. And uh, long story short, 
<laughs> I cut it into two parts. Have I made that clear? All right. Uh, all right, listen, this is a great, great conversation. Go ahead and start your workout now because here comes the rest of my chat with Louise Gothen. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Chris Difford, that guy has a lot of strengths. What about him musically do you admire? He is such a great songwriter, and he tells a story. He's a great storyteller. And you can tell in the way he, you know, he speaks. He, he has a lot of humor, and, and it shows up in his lyrics. You know, humor is great in song lyrics. Uh, and he, you know, he says this in the interview. He's like a tailor making a suit for somebody. He is able to change the point of view He's not stuck with here. Here I am. This is who I am, and I only have to write from this point of view. He can, he can change the point of view like like a simplest would, you know, where they're playing characters, and he's he's amazing at that. And he's worked with so many fantastic singers and musicians, and he says he doesn't play that much. You know, he plays guitar and a bit, and I think he plays bass. Um, but he, he likes being the storyteller more than anything. I think when you and I talked last year, um, I didn't know this album was happening. Did you, I mean, how, when did this come together? When did you know this album was going to be a thing? Oh, I certainly had to know. I mean, I had already recorded it a year ago. Okay. What were, we, what were we talking about a year ago? Did I have a single out before we We talked? were talking, okay, we were talking about the idea, you were thinking about like you were sort of releasing songs, right? And you, and you liked that way of doing it. Um, I think I know what happened. Yeah, nothing had come out from the record yet. I think it was right after Revenge, if I remember right, correctly. Right, Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, yeah, Revenge was nothing to do with the record. The record I started the day after the election in 2016. So the record had no shape to it. It was just, I recorded 24 of my songs over a period of, you know, it was not uh, happening all at once. It's like we went in in November for three days and cut, uh, those three days, we cut four, five, six, seven, eight. We cut 10 songs in three days. And then the next week, we probably did a couple of days and cut another six songs. And then, you know, a few weeks went by and then did a week in December. And then I think we did a week in February where, um, you know, there were different bands, different line lineups and, it would usually occur a whole bunch of songs at once would be recorded with a certain band over a two or three day period. And then we, we wouldn't do anything in between, you know, we kept the tracks the way we left them. Uh, the only thing I would do in between is vocals. I was doing vocals at home. So I would take home tracks and, you know, record vocals in my own studio. And um, and then, you know, 
since we waited a bunch of time to mix, we rough mixes, and then Dave mixed everything, I think. He mixed everything May of 2017. So it was just like six months later, I guess. And then I thought, I don't know what, I don't know what I'm going to do with all these songs. I wanted to make a double record or a triple record. And meanwhile, I had been writing new songs. And I, you know, I think the time we spoke, I had written that song with Skylar Gudas and we made a demo and we thought the demo was really cool. And Frankie Ruiz, I called her to come over. I said, Hey, you know, Skylar's here. We made this demo. Can you come over? Can we shoot a video? And we put on, you know, wigs and hats and sunglasses and went around the corner and found a graffiti alleyway and literally played the demo on her iPhone and was dancing around with Frankie filming us. Um, and then Frankie did a director's cut and we were like, okay, some of this is just great. And some of it is really silly. We're just dancing around looking goofy and, you know, we don't, we're like, we want to be badass chicks. <laughs> we don't want to. We don't want to be wiggle. We don't want to wiggle a lot in this video. You know, we want to walk down the alley with our guitars. Um, anyway, I started to play with this idea for a lyrical version of Frankie's edit uh, with these cartoons, these pop art cartoons, and I said they were stills, but they were telling a story. And so I turned these cartoons into a video woven between Frankie's video, which again, that was the first time she used animation. She found this great animation. I think that was done in like 1908. And she superimposed that over what she shot of us in the alley. And then I interlaced that with these pop art, super colorful images and also some lyrics. And I was still doing this on a really basic form. I was doing it on like iMovie or something. And then, you know, I made this video and it's a very cool video. I like it. And I love the track too. And then I think right after we did this and I spoke to you, I started to release just singles from all the recordings. Um, I, don't, I think Let Me In Again was the first single. Yeah, that and sounds then, right. Yeah, and I did it as a, I wanted to do B-side, so I had a fine surprise on the B-side, which was just ridiculous, because there's no such thing as B-side in digital, and I said, forget this, I'm not doing, you know, I'm putting out too many songs at once, they're not singles if I'm, if there's two songs and one's a B-side, and I didn't even have, like, a cover for a fine surprise, because the cover was for Let Me In Again, so I started doing that, and you know, did that into the end of the year and then the new year came and then I started making some of my own videos to some of these singles. I did one for Good Times Call, which was, I started animating lyrics. So time consuming, but that was a fun video for Good Times Call. And then I had written this song uh, with Scott about my kid going to college and that was so good. I said, I have to just put this out now. Scott Robinson. And I have to put this out now. So I made a video, you know, mostly with stock footage and doing fun things with it, you know, kind of manipulating it. 
to that song. So I just really had been editing all year and making videos to be singles. And then, you know, kind of shopping around for a record deal and they're being promising things, but everybody was just dragging their feet. And I just said, I just can't, I just can't wait anymore. I am, I'm putting out an album, putting out 10 songs at once. I don't care what people say. People say no one, albums are dead. No one listens to 10 songs. You know, they only listen to singles. And I just, I didn't care. I just felt like it was an album and I wanted to put it out. So that's, how it happened and that's why I didn't bring it up when we spoke because it probably was unclear what was going to happen then what in terms for you and by the way I love how busy you are with your with your art it's very inspiring whether you're editing or writing or um or playing or just practicing uh and I also like the fact that you are so supportive of younger singer-songwriters who are you know young sort of uh aspirants to the craft, um, kids, uh, that you're active in that as well. Um, you're very generous with your time too. Well, it's nice of you to say, I mean, the thing is, if somebody wants help, you know, I'm happy to give it because I mean, honestly, like if I tell one of my kids, well, why don't you write a melody first and then do the things it, me saying it is just like, I don't care what you think. Like, nobody wants my opinion. If there's someone who actually values my opinion. Of course, yeah, I'm happy to give an opinion and be generous with my time. It's It definitely feels a lot better than someone slamming the door and saying, get out of my face. Let me do my hip hop. <laughs> you know? But um, I'm being funny. It's, you know, it's it's really not, it's not that there's more respect. But yeah, I I love I definitely love excellence and things going, you know, being the best they can be. And if I see someone starting out and struggling or using cliches or, you know, I, I'm all too happy to help bring light to how it could be distilled and be better. And I also, you know, songwriting just saved my life, you know, it spiritually saved my life, which is really the only thing that matters. Um, you know, it's for me, the only truly safe place to go because people, you know, great people are great, but even great people are flawed, <laughs> you know, yeah. people can let you down. Um, what has been an amazing gift for me is that, the time that I put into songs continue to enrich my life, you know, and it's not, it's not a monetary thing because my songs don't make money. You know, it's not like my parents who like they continually make money off of songs that were written 50 years ago. My, my songs, they never really made much money. Like once in a while I'd be like, Hey, you know, you got the end credit in a movie. Okay, you know, that'll pay this month's bills, you know. Right. Those things are always nice, but they're very few and far between and, and most of most of anything that happens with songs, it's like, okay, great, twenty five more fans will hear this, you know. Um, it's that old thing of like, Well, we won't just pay you but you'll get exposure. But <laughs> it enriches my life because 
you know, you can walk into a song, like you can look at an old photograph of your song and it, I'm sorry, you can look at an old photograph of yourself and you look at it. It's like, Oh yeah, I remember when I used to look like that. And it, it's kind of separate from you, right? You're, it's still a, a picture of you and doesn't look like you look now. I always lie to myself and tell tell myself it does a little more, you know, but yeah, I don't look like that now. And yet a song that you wrote at that time, you play it in the moment and you are in it. You are in that body expressing those emotions from another time. And to me, that is an incredible gift. It's like somebody just gave you, you know, handed you a gift. It's just like your younger self, a different energy, a different point of view is, is enriching your life in the moment. And it's incredible. Like you can buy groceries that will go bad in a week, but you write a song and, you know, 30 years later, you still got a full fridge of, you know, inspiration. It's, it's a, it's an amazing thing. So I love what songs do, you know, and how they enrich lives and, and also, they're very, uh, they're very, very therapeutic. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine your life without them? I mean, I mean, that just seems impossible. It seems impossible because what happens in life is the older you get, the longer you do things. The quieter that voice is of who you used to be, or or your inner voice, or your soul, or whatever it is, you know that that subconscious self gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer, you know, because life gets noisier and noisier and noisier. So when you take the time to go to those places, to write a song or to listen to the song that wants to present itself to you or to play around with connections that you may not understand why you're playing around with, it's your subconscious talking. Then you're visiting that place in yourself. And and I think the more you visit that place, the less likely you are to make bad life choices, get in bad relationships, because you've got that inner voice talking to you going, eh, no, don't go there. Go there. This is good for you. This makes you happy. That doesn't make you happy, you know? And when you don't write songs and you're just living life, you could just get caught up in the flow of life and, and not, hear that voice anymore and and I think people get nostalgic that word nostalgic people get nostalgic because they don't have it in their lives in the moment they're they're you know idealizing a time when they felt like they were closer to themselves it doesn't have to be a long time ago you know it can be I've never been one for nostalgia (laughs) It's when people say, oh, remember the good old days? That's like, no, <laughs> these are the good old days. I don't know. I don't want to go back to the good old days. They weren't good. Well, um, have you always been like that? Because I, I, lately I'm finding myself that I'm sort of I'm rebelling against nostalgia. I, I don't want to be nostalgic. I don't want to curate a museum of myself. Uh, no, I don't. I, I, I think I've always been that way. I mean, my mom asked me two years ago you know, you should write a memoir. Why don't you write a memoir? I was like, memoir? 
I'm not done. Like, I'm still living the life I would write about. Why would I want to stop my life right now to right. reflect on it when I'm still living it? I want to live it. I yeah. don't want to reflect on it. But I do think, you know, okay, if that's something to look forward to, like reliving. I mean, memories are important. They, they are important. I mean, the older you get, the more your memories you know, keep you going. I mean, it's a very sad thing when people have Alzheimer's and they can't remember the lives they led or the relationships they've had. So, you know, thinking about the past, I don't entirely write off. It's, uh, you know, my father is gone and I, I like the nostalgia of thinking of times with him or things that happened. And those things get into your songs and your stories and your art. So I don't write that off entirely, but I just, I don't like negating the moment. That's what it is. It's, it's if I'm living in the past, I'm not living in the moment. And I like, I think I've always been pretty progressive. I like pushing myself to, you know, try new things and learn new things. And, you know, there, there are people of my generation or our generation who just really are not happy with the way that, music's gone like with streaming and there's a lot of oh we used to get budgets we used to get paid we used to you know and a lot of it's true and and I am so grateful for the people who are fighting for songwriters rights because songwriters have always been just taken so for granted there's there'd be nothing without songs none of the music business would even be there without the songwriting and yet songwriters have just been really treated like disposable, you know, entities um, in terms of how they get compensated. But, you know, some of that is changing slowly. But I do, I do welcome the way things are changing. It, it's, it's a whole thing to get used to, you know? I mean, you can't just put out records anymore. People don't really care about records, actually. They, they care about uh, the whole story. They want an artist. They want a person. They want to know what that person thinks about life and how they cook. And it's it's performance art 24-7. And it's a different model, but it's the way it is. And I just think, it's something to work with and embrace and come up with new fun ways to, you know, present music. I worry sometimes the mystique um, can get lost, you know, because sometimes you, you don't want to really know how certain people cook. <laughs> you don't want to really know how they, how they live their lives and treat the people around them. And um, even though I think it can also be, it could be a great glimpse inward uh, it can also be something that can kind of ruin the sort of um, not the fantasy, but the myth in your head that you that you that you make. You know, when you listen to music, there's this kind of like you start building ideas and cities in your head about what that person is like. And, you know, that can be destroyed with too much of a glimpse, I think, too. Well, that's interesting because I brought that up yesterday doing a podcast interview and. I was saying, you know, there are certain artists who don't want to be interviewed. And it's interesting you interviewed David Bowie because I put him in that category. I was thinking Prince, 
you know, Dylan hardly has done any interviews, Bowie. You know, I was thinking of the artists who really want a mystique and they don't want to talk about how it's done. They don't want to talk about the craft of songwriting. They were, you know, or even John Lennon would used to say, you know, I just wrote the bloody song, you know, it's like, no, I didn't mean that. I didn't, you, you're the one who made up Paul is dead or whatever these interpretations. <laughs> so with Bob Dylan lyrics, all these interpretations of what did you really mean? And it's like, I didn't mean that at all. You know, I meant my dog, you know, or whatever it was. There are certain artists who just, they don't want people to know the workings of the craft of the song or how they live or the routines or any of that. And I think that's cool. I think that's cool too. But what I do like is, you know, if you're listening to Taylor Swift's music and you're seeing her in a video and she looks great and the record is great, you like it when she's, you know, home with her family, you know, showing you a behind the scenes on Instagram of how her and her brother, I don't know, does she have a brother? Yes. I think I remember something a long time ago. Yeah. Are, are playing a game of, you know, something, you know, before Thanksgiving dinner, whatever it is. We like when our heroes are humanized and we go, Oh, they're like us. They're like us. They're human beings. They're not just shiny, perfect people. I think that's, endearing it is and then there's also the uh, the flip side of that which is i don't want to see robert plant in 1974 even putting gas in a car because he was like a god you, you sort of he existed on this like celestial rock and roll plane um and the idea that he lived a quotidian life uh was somehow disappointing tell me what did you, what are you referring to? Well, I mean, not that there's any photos of him putting gas in the car, but he just seemed like a god. Oh. And it's sort of like it's one of those things where I know what you're saying, and I also feel like the Taylor Swift thing is like if she chooses to show us her playing a game, that's an extension of the performance, right? That's not really a natural thing. Um well, it, oh, it always is like every single thing people put on social media is an extension of the performance. It's, you know, otherwise it's mundane. But right. I, yeah, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. And that's, that's a, that's a, a good point too. You know, I can picture like a manager saying, Hey, you're Robert Plant. You don't ride the bus. You know, you get in the limo. <laughs> right, right. That kind of thing. Yeah. It's, and I guess maybe it just depends on the performer. I know Noel Gallagher from Oasis years ago said, you know, when people look up on the stage, they don't want to see a guy who looks like their next door neighbor. They want to see a God. And I think to a degree that's probably true. Um, and then it's also kind of nice to see um, the other side of it as well. I guess I'm in both camps. Well, yeah, I should think deeply about this. So when I was signed to Warner Brothers, in 1988, um, I went out one day with Liz Berg, who was Madonna's and my press person at the time. She was Warner Brothers press person. And Madonna, Freddie DeMann, who was Madonna's manager at the, at the time. I think we went to CBGB's. It was like the late 80s. It was like, oh, we're all going to see this band play at CBGB's tonight. And... 
I remember I was had lived in London at that point, and when you go into a pub in London, people always say, I'm going to the bar. Anybody want a drink? You know, people tend to buy rounds, and then the next person buys a round. It's like, you know, I'll have a half pint. I don't know. It was just a thing, you know. It's like people would take turns buying the rounds. So I went to the table and asked everybody, I'm going to the bar. Does anybody want a drink? And Madonna, <laughs> she just kind of like shot me down in a kind of critical way and just told me I was too nice. And it wasn't a compliment. It was really like, you're too nice. Like, that ain't going to cut it. You can't be that way. You got to be like, you got to be more scary and you can't be, she was telling me I was being too accommodating, which I probably was. I mean, I'm with all these Warner Brothers people. Why am I buying the drinks? They should be buying the drinks. They're like super wealthy and have expense accounts. And, and it kind of haunted me in my dreams for years later. I was just like Madonna, who was this goddess, you know, in the culture at the time told me, you know, kind of slapped my hand and told me I was too nice and I'd go, oh, that's the source of all my problems right there. I I just can't be accommodating and friendly and nice to people. I have to be, I have to learn to be more of a bitch and then, and then I'll be an empowered woman. Anyway, uh, yeah, you could have a point. I mean, that must have stung a little bit when she said it. Did, at the time, did it sting? Totally stung. It, yeah. It, yeah, it totally stung. I felt like she knew something I didn't know and had to learn. That's what how I took it. Yeah, and in many ways, she was giving you a little bit of like the answer key of how to rise to the top is like be be tough. Don't let people right be be the one who's who's the tough one in the room. Yeah, yeah, true. I mean, it's a it's a lifelong thing for me that I mean. It's, it's a lifelong thing because I had a father who was, he really struggled with his own self-esteem all the time in spite of the fact that after he died, everyone's like legendary Jerry Goffin, you know, when he was alive, you know, he was, uh, he was always struggling to, to get cuts and get people to write with him and insecure about his work, you know. Is it any good? You know, even songs he'd written a long time ago that are now, you know, classics and were classics then. He'd still doubt himself and, you know, compare himself to Bob Dylan or someone he revered and, and find himself as like, was he as good as him? And he was very humble and he projected so much of that onto me that whenever I would strut myself, my stuff in, Anyway, he would put me in my place. He'd be like, you got to be humble. You got to be, you know, he preached humility, to, which I over, which is a great lesson anyway. But I, I overdid it to the point where, oh, gosh, you know, if I got a little bit of confidence or thought, hey, I look really good in this dress. I'm going to feel good. I always had this feeling of who do you think you are, you know, which came from him. So. You know, Madonna saying that to me in the 80s kind of pushed that button. It's like, you know, how how will I ever be comfortable walking in a room and feeling like, you know, I don't care about the people in the room? And how do I get over this disease of being accommodating and, and you know, wanting people to 
think I'm a good person. Like, how am I going to overcome that? And it is a lifelong struggle. And women generally are raised to be accommodating, be the hostesses, check on everybody, make sure everybody's okay. And men typically, you know, are raised to go out and conquer. So, you know, when people talk about making changes in society and equal rights for women, you know, a lot of that work we have to do internally as well. It's not just change the way people perceive us, it's really like on the deepest core of ourselves, change the way we give ourselves permission, you know? He blew up match, and that's what brings you here. Are you trying to shine or just disappear? Cause running away can become a career before you know it. Your shoes look like mine You're trying to get to heaven One dollar at a time One dollar at a time You thought life was a song With all perfect rhymes I'd solve all my troubles in four simple lines Now I'm here at this bus stop With a heavy state of mind Trying to get to heaven One dollar at a time One dollar at a time Diamonds in the street Where the neon hits the rain He said, thank you, lucky stars We are not the same That bus pulls away Exactly at nine For Houston, while I stay behind, still at the station with this cardboard sign that says, Trying to get to heaven one dollar at a time, one dollar at a time. Ooh, diamonds in the street. Where the neon hits the rain He said, thank you, lucky stars We are not the same I thought I could get 
Cause it's real hard to pay for the things I regret With a cup full of quarters and dimes Trying to get to heaven one dollar at a time Trying to get to heaven one dollar at a Uh, I struggle a lot with owning my strengths and accomplishments. Um, I see them and other people reflect them to me, but I feel a little bit like a fish who doesn't know it's swimming in water because it's in it all the time. Uh. Yeah, I I don't really feel it. I can objectively kind of imagine, yeah, I, I guess I have accomplished that. Like when you said to me, this is turning into a therapy session, isn't it? It's not <laughs> talking about songs anymore. My God. Um, when you said to me, I'm so inspired by how artistic you are and how you work all the time and you, you're generous with your time and all that stuff. And I, I go kind of like, okay. You know, it doesn't feel like that to me. I'm very compelled to work and edit and learn new things. But mostly it comes from, it's it's really, I wish I could say it was motivated by this great desire to express myself. It really comes from the fact there's no one else to do the job. Like, I don't have a staff. There's, there's no one else making videos for me. There's no one else uh, doing half the things I do. So I do have an attitude of like, okay. I'm going to learn how to do this. You know, my mother has that in the beautiful musical. There's a scene where the Shirelles say, can you put strings on it? Can you, can you orchestrate? She goes, Oh yes, I can orchestrate. And then she said, well, if you can, put, if you can make this have an elegant sound, then we'll cut it. And then they leave the room and the character playing my mother and the character playing my father, the father says, you can orchestrate, you can orchestrate. And she goes, or he says, well, where are you going? She says, I'm going to the library to check out a book on how to orchestrate. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and that was a true story. She did go to the library. So my point is, is I have that same genetic thing of like, I say yes first, and then I scratch my head and I figure out, okay, how, how am I going to learn how to do this thing that I that needs to be done? And, you know, that's why I'm busy a lot. But um, yeah, I do. I do struggle, and and I think a lot of a lot of women do. I, I mean, a lot of my women friends. It's like, 
yeah, we need to be there for each other to hold up mirrors to say, you're badass. Look at what you're doing. Oh, my goodness. You know, because we don't say that to ourselves easily. We, we need to be reminded. We are so busy making sure everybody's okay, the kids are okay, you know, the partner is okay, the house is okay, you know, our work is in on time, we look okay, we're exercising. It's just a, it's a genetic, I won't say it's genetic because there are many women who are very self-centered and, and aren't like that. Um, so I can't really generalize, but I, I know for me, in the generation I grew up in and with the father I had, you know, it was always be a good person. And it wasn't really clear what that meant, but it was clear that if you did for yourself, there was this negative connotation to the word selfish. And it's, you can't really be there for other people if you're not taking care of yourself. If you're not giving to yourself, you really are not being generous giving to other people. You know what I mean? Right. It's like you, you have to have something to give. So the more that you enrich yourself and your life and have success, the more it is an act of generosity to share it with other people. If you're running around accommodating other people and you, you are, malnourished as a person yourself, your giving to people is not a service to you or them because you're really not giving them much. And I I agree with that because I reject the idea that being selfish is like a pejorative thing. I, I think that you're in your head 24 hours a day. You eat what you want to eat. You sleep when you're tired. You hang out with who you want to hang out with. I mean, is that selfish? I mean, no, you're, you're just sort of serving your impulses and your desires. So... Um, I, I like the idea of a little bit of selfishness can be incredibly enriching. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's things that are just character traits, though. Like if you tell someone you're going to do something and they're relying on you to do it, if you get a better offer, it, it say someone saying you're being selfish for leaving me hanging because you went and did this other thing that was better for you. Oh, well, like yeah. Maybe, yeah. That that's not a good thing to do, you know. I mean, I my my boyfriend works in in live, you know, live production. So you know, if you have a band showing up on stage and you have someone who has to show up to mix the monitors or you know set up the stage or do loading or any of that, and somebody doesn't show up, it's it's just you can't function, you know, life. Life can't function. We're all we're all working parts, working together. And when one person just does what they feel like doing because it feels good and because it's good for them alone, you know, that to me is a true expression of the negative connotation of selfish. But to be like, I'm I want to show up to my job and I want to show up on time and I want to do a good job. Because that is selfish because I feel good and I'm contributing and I'll have a job and I'll feel good about the job I'm doing. That's, that's a good selfish. Right. I, agree. I totally agree with that. And can you, can you accept someone telling you you're a badass right now? If someone says, that was, that was pretty badass what you did. Are you, 
are you better at absorbing that or do you still kind of go yeah i'm still pretty i'm still i'm still i don't absorb it deeply enough no i don't so you you do struggle with that totally it's interesting it's so sad come on snap out of it louise i know i know (laughs) walk the talk talk the talk you are a badass and you know it's funny like my my jewish guilt it's so hardwired into me is that when someone gives me a compliment, I feel guilty that I'm taking the spotlight from them. I am exactly the same. I am exactly the same. So you get it. I can tell you so, uh, oh, 100%. I, you know what it's called? It's called caretaking. Yeah. It's caretaking. I, I realized how, okay, so here's the thing. This is interesting. I raised my sons to not be that way. And so I'm patting myself on the back right now saying I did not hand that down to them. <laughs> Thank you. I stop, It stops with me here. I am not going to have you be that way. So is it really illustrated to me when my youngest son and his buddy, they were both, it was, they were younger, they were both into basketball. And I can't remember what it was, but. Somebody came up to my son and gave him this huge compliment with his buddy there. And my son didn't make a single move to deflect it off of him and, and say, oh, but my friend is also really good at that. Like, he didn't do that at all. He just owned it entirely and said, thank you. You know, and I watched that happen and I went, that was really interesting. I would have never done that. I would have immediately deflected it and uh-huh. thought, well, my friend is here and I know that he's incredible at basketball. And I would say, you know, so-and-so is really amazing at basketball too. I would have shared the spotlight just as a knee-jerk reaction. And then when the person left, I asked him about it later. I said, that was really interesting. I said, did you not even, did you not feel that you needed to deflect it or bring him in? He was like, no, I didn't need to do that. I mean, he can take care of himself. He knows he's good. I mean, I don't even need me to, you know, it was just simple. That's what it was. It was like, this is just a simple, honest way to be. He doesn't feel like, it's actually inflating yourself to think that it's your job to do that for someone else. You know, it's kind of, who the hell do you think you are? You're not God. They can take care of themselves. You don't have to make sure that their ego is okay. You know what I mean? So I completely understand and I am right there with you. And I learned a lesson from my son that day. I just thought, okay, I'm going to model myself after you. Cause this is, this is a good way to be Just say, you know, I have heard it said when someone pays you a compliment, you have all those thoughts in your head of I don't deserve or, well, so-and-so is really good or, you know, I just got lucky. All those excuses we make, you know, just practicing. Thank you. <laughs> just that's right. it. You're done. Thank right. you. And, and, and no Thank one's you. doing it for you. Yeah. And it's, have you noticed also that no one does that for you? It's like no one's trying to make sure your feelings are okay when, when they get a compliment. You know, it's like it's weird how it doesn't work that way. My mother has done that for me, though. She has done that, I think, because she has had such, you know, enormous success. And it's not just me. I've seen her do it for other people, too. You know, she knows lots of people who are really capable, amazing songwriters 
who just weren't in the same time and place in their lives, you know, when things didn't unfold the same way. I mean, she's brilliant. She's better than almost anybody. You know, her songwriting is just on another level. Right. Um, and, and yet, you know, when she gets a compliment in front of someone else who does it, she, you know, for many years, I'd see her go through that thing of like, I'm uncomfortable with all the light. Let me deflect some of this, you know? And, and she would sometimes do this thing that I had to say, please stop doing that, where she'd say, well, Louise in her own right. And as soon as she'd say the phrase in her own right, I would just, I'd hate it. I'd be like, it sounds like if you need to say that, it sounds like, um, I don't know. I didn't like the sound of it. It sounds like you have to work to make people do you get why it would be uncomfortable? Oh, I don't know. It's totally, just, completely. It almost feels yeah, so like, like a... Please stop saying that. Please stop saying right. that. Don't say that. Don't say anything. Yeah, because it feels a little bit like, reductive. Yeah. It feels like a handout. You right. Know? And I don't... Yeah, so... But it's tough. Yeah, it's, it's tough. And I, I know there's some, like, Buddhist quote I read somewhere that said... Uh, God, I wish I, I took a photograph of it. It was at some festival, but it was something about any assertion of superiority or something is an act of aggression. Uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, we all want to feel included and our culture is, is so full of lies, you know, I mean, social media is full of the way things really are not <laughs> and right. television. I mean, television isn't even a word anymore, but you know, the media, um, the way things are portrayed, you know, even all the sex they have in all the, the dramas on, on the streaming services, you know, it's like, if you have a new pilot, you better have a sex scene right at the beginning of it. If you're going to want anybody to watch, the next episode it's almost like every single one is predictably you know there it is and you know you 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 imagine like everybody at home and this has probably been true in movies and television for ages everyone's thinking well they have nicer nicer houses and they have more sex and they have you know like <laughs> everything is geared to this shiny idea of you know, how Thanksgivings are supposed to be and how families are supposed to look. And it, it is a, an act of aggression in a way because the result is we all end up feeling less than, like we can't compare, you know, that, that famous, you know, slogan, 12-step slogan, don't compare your insides to other people's outsides, you know, uh -huh. which is something everybody does, but yeah, it's it's really important to find a way to stop the voice of comparing and um, and not to get a read on your badassness from what other people are telling you or reflecting. And that's one of the things that, that's one of the reasons I most want to do songwriting masterclasses. That reason exactly there. Because so many young writers, or even when I say young writers, they could be older people who just started writing, but so many people starting out 
they're just getting their directives of how valuable what they're doing is from other people. And if, you know, if you have a spouse at home who thinks that you're being really selfish by taking time to write when you should be cooking, you know, or whatever it is, or parents who say, you know, we spent all this money sending you to medical school and now you're <laughs> writing songs, you know, whatever it is. If we take that in, you know, we're constantly just feeling terrible. So we, we need to find a language to support that it's good for our soul. Here's why I do this. It's good for my soul. I'm not doing this, to, you know, to prove anything. I'm not doing it to be better than them. I'm not doing it to outdo that person who treated me badly, whatever it is. I mean, there's all sorts of motives and none of them are wrong. Motives are great. Anything that gives fire and desire to doing something creative and positive is fair enough. You know, even if it's, even if the motive is revenge, you know, when you're doing sit-ups and the, the gym coach says, you know, you're pissed that he left you. Come on, give me 10 more. Sure. You know, if it's motivated by revenge, well, if it makes your, if it gives you a six pack and just keep doing it, you know, but my point is that we just carry around these things in our head that debilitate us. I mean, literally debilitate our lives. And if I can be one voice saying, this is a good thing for you to do, you know, and your job is to advocate for yourself. No one, don't wait around for someone else to advocate. Do not do this so that you can walk in an an office and someone's going to, you know, be your champion because you could be waiting 20 years. You, your job is to be your own champion. And, you know, you are, you are doing this for you. Yeah, it it's funny because uh, last week one of my students after class said to me, uh, oh, Professor Green, I want to let you know that your class means so much to me and I've learned so much and I've become a better person just because of the experience of sitting in the classroom with you. And my response was, how's lacrosse? <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't take it. I could not focus on, that was too much focus on me. And it was very uncomfortable. And I felt like I was robbing the moment uh, when she was giving the moment to me. Um, It was very strange. Yeah, I hear you, brother. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. Uh, I understand. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, and I think some people don't like standing out, even if it's for good. You know, you don't want to stand out and be a freak and you don't want to stand out and be less than, but you don't want to stand out and, you know, cause there's this fear that if you're, if you can play better lacrosse than someone else, your, your schoolmates will hate you. I know I, I switched over into another field, but <laughs> it, all I'm saying is, you know, you don't want to stand out. You want to be equal. You want, I don't know. That's, I remember I had that when I was younger, you know, I, I mean, I look back and I go, Oh gosh, you know, you were beautiful at the time. I'd go, I mean, nobody paid me compliments because they were too busy kind of, you know, being uh, catty. 
you know, I made, if I looked good in that dress, I made them feel insecure. So they weren't going to say you, only a secure person can give a compliment. You know, that's one of the wonderful things about being older is you feel more confident. And I can look at my girlfriends and go, you look sexy in that dress or man, you got great legs or, oh, you look amazing. You know, it's not taken like a come on. It's just, you know, you can, you can say that when you're in high school and insecure and one of your girlfriends comes to school looking, you know, sexy or taller than you, whatever it is, you don't have the confidence to say you look great. All you're thinking about is you. You go, oh, God, what am I? I'm so, you know, what am I going to look like that? Or I'll never be that beautiful. That's what we do when we're younger. And the more insecure people are, the the least generous they're capable of being. Yeah, it's so true. It's it's definitely something I've thought about a lot where I just, I deflect, just like you, I deflect. Yeah. It's funny. So are, are we going to stop doing that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's let's stop doing that. Because Okay, let's stop doing that. It, we're not doing it anymore cuz I listen, let's put it to the test. I think you're a badass. I love everything you've done. Your new album is fantastic and I'm inspired by you. So there you go. So now you now we're stopping doing that, right? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. And I love talking to you. Your questions are so great, and I love that you go off into these tangential things so well, and that you really bring yourself into the interview and you care. And clearly, you're an artist by the conversations we have, and I love that about you. Well, thank you. See, neither one of us are deflecting. Yeah, good. We need to deflect. Right. Or maybe I'm deflecting by saying I'm not deflecting. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Um, I, we, you know, we got good neuroses going here. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, I, um, I love talking to you too. And I, I was so excited to chat with you again. And we have to do it more than once a year. I think you should be a regular uh, guest every couple of months. Well, cool. Let's that would it. be fun. I could, yeah. And I'm so, again, I'm so grateful that you gave me so much time. It's so fun to talk to you again. It's, it's, what a blast. Oh, thank you. Well, I loved it. Well, there you go. Louise Goffin, uh, one of my all-time favorite guests on the show. And uh, I hope she comes back. I feel like she will. I feel like I have a kinship with her. Uh, I don't think that would hold up in court, and I don't think anyone would feel comfortable with me saying that, uh, but I feel it. Uh, now, if you want to buy her album, All These Hellos, you should do that. Go to louisegothin.com. Uh, all the music and tour dates that are uh, germane to Louise Gothin uh, will be on that site. All the stuff that's germane to me, uh, Alex Green Online. Dot com. There will be some tour dates coming up. I shouldn't call them tour dates. They're basically just appearances where I interview authors uh, in, uh, in bookstores all across this fine land that we live in. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, please do it at Ember's Editor on Instagram. Uh, you can find me at Ember's Podcast. If you want to email me, do it, editor, at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Maybe there's a guest you'd like me to book on the show uh, that hasn't been on the show before, or maybe someone that you have heard on the show before and you want to hear them again, uh, I'm fine either way. 
I will do my best to track them down. Okay? All right. If you're on iTunes, hey, subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to Bombshell Radio. And, you know, if you're feeling like you got some stars that are kicking around in your pocket like spare change and you don't know what to do with them, hey, give us a rating. And if you have some extra time, leave a comment or two. I read these things. I do. I scour them late at night holding a flashlight and a knife. All right, let's close things off with Louise Gothen. This is a brand new track from her album, All These Hellos. It's Turn to Gold. Enjoy it right here, and I'll see you next week on Stereo Embers, the podcast. On the other side, we walk on water. We walk on water. Keep on